0: Hello and welcome to Story Untold. I'm Martin Bauman, and this week we're delving into part two of the best of Story Untold series around fear. If you haven't given part one a listen, you should check it out. But this is not a serial thing. You can listen to part one and two in any order you like. One thing off the bat before we get into this episode. If you enjoy the show, if you want to support the podcast in some way, there's a new shop section on the Story Untold website. You can find t-shirts, tank tops, long sleeves, stickers there. Everything is done, made to order through Printful. Comes straight to your door, looks fantastic. So if you want to help the show run and come out of it with a nice bit of clothing, check it out. Again, that's under the shop section. Back to fear. Something that comes up in so many avenues of life. Something that doesn't really go away with age. Maybe the things we're afraid of change. But in the face of fear, there can be courage too something each of these guests this week show in spades. This episode will be like the last one, a run-through of some of the most memorable episodes from the podcast, from facing fear as a highliner looking down at a thousand feet of air beneath you, fear as a tool in competition as a marathon runner, insecurity and how it ties into self-sabotage, and the fear that comes from being kidnapped, escaping a child soldier camp. We'll start this off with Ryan Robinson, Episode 35, Ryan is one of the world's leading highline athletes. Picture tightrope walking, but without the bar and on a slackline. You're often hundreds of feet in the air on a line that stretches and bounces, basically the last place in the world I would ever want to be. Ryan grew up in Sacramento. He's been in campaigns with Red Bull, GoPro, and National Geographic. He's been on American Ninja Warrior, and he lives out of his van. The goal he's got is to walk a thousand meters blindfolded, which sounds crazy for a guy when you find out he's afraid of heights. Here's Ryan. Tell me about what makes for a good highliner. What exactly what makes for somebody who can stand, you know, surrounded by 364 degrees of of open air, keep their composure, and succeed in that environment.
1: You know, I I've thought about an answer to that question. It's really interesting because of all the Highliners that I know, there are obviously gonna be different breeds of those types of people and like the kind of person I guess that seeks out something like this. When I discovered highlining, it was a moment in my life where there were there was just a lot of transition going on. I was finishing college, I had got out of a relationship, lost a job. I was doing triathlons competitively for about 10 years and uh, I found this and I just like stuck to it so hard that I think most of my family and friends thought I was going absolutely crazy <laughs> to, <laughs> to go from kind of, you know, the career path to all of a sudden I'm selling everything I own and buying a bunch of ropes so that I can learn how to balance on them. It was <laughs> it was pretty different, <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, to kind of get back to your question specifically What kind of person? I don't know. I've met quite a few very intelligent people that get into this sport. Maybe that's just me (laughs) complimenting (laughs) myself. And then you've got like those people that were just searching for something and then found that something in highlining. And then you've got the athletic people that just appreciate the challenge. For me, it was kind of all those things. So it was just the perfect thing for me.
0: Tell me a bit more about the place that you were at in your life when you came across this. What was your background?
1: Well, I guess the, the very first part of the background would be that I'm a Libra. So we have <laughs> like this obsession with balance. And I guess that is pretty accurate for me. I've always had that. Um, but yeah, when I was younger, I I, I mean, my, my father was a cyclist. And uh, I remember very distinctly being like five years old. And my dad would do what's called a track stand on his road bike. And you just kind of like hold the pedals and uh, hold the brakes and stand on two wheels and don't go anywhere. And we would always do that, so I guess it started way earlier than I realized. um And then, yeah, trials was really cool, but I I kept hurting myself, and so that sort of led me to other things like bike related. And from there, I went to triathlons, where I started focusing on all three: running and swimming, and got really big into cycling. I got really big into endurance stuff. I ended up doing a couple, like I actually did a bike race across the United States. I've done the California coast, just a lot of different like. I really, really love the the endurance challenge. So I was just always searching for more. I just, I don't know. I, I couldn't just do normal stuff. I, I mean, I played soccer, I had fun with that, but it didn't call to me and I really wanted to see how far I could push myself until I broke and just like, I don't know, crazy stuff like that.
0: The kinds of things that somebody who does, competes in Ironman competitions and who wants to ride a bicycle across the United <laughs> States would do, yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, yeah. Which is ironic <laughs> because most of my friends, that, like my best friends, they'll tell you that I'm, that you'd never expect it. I'm just really chill. I have my sentiments are pretty relaxed. I've been asked so many times if I'm a pothead and I've never smoked weed, that kind of thing. So it's just really a dichotomy. And I don't know. Maybe it's not ironic because I know a lot of highlanders are the same way
0: which comes first for you getting on a slack line or the flight of the Frenchies movie, which was the first introduction for you?
1: Getting on the slack line was the very first. Okay. Um, Ironically, I'm actually in my van just outside of the uh, climbing gym where I first got on that. Okay. So (laughs) kind
2: of
1: cool, but yeah. And then the flight of the Frenchies was second. So the first time I got on the slack line, I waited until everyone was gone. I didn't want anyone to see me do it and fail. I, uh, got on it once and I fell off and like just got a little cut on my leg and I just figured (laughs) this, this is the stupidest sport. I'm not even going to do that. I'm going to focus on climbing. And then it, I think it was about a year later. I think someone tagged me in this video or I saw it on Facebook or something and man, like nothing else in my life ever. It just sucked me in and I I watched it like 50 times that night and I, I couldn't stop. So
0: from that moment of seeing the movie, how soon after that do you actually get on a Highline or Slackline again after seeing this?
1: So from that point, I actually, like, I just started I just started YouTubing. And what a beautiful generation uh, or, like, moment in time that we live in where we can just Google Slacklining and YouTube yeah. Slacklining and, and find information that's incredible. The challenge that I was having is that it was such a new sport. That I was learning a lot of the basics, like how to set up a basic slack line between two trees. But and, you know, then it started there. I went to REI and bought some webbing and some rope and kind of angled a couple of things, but it still wasn't enough. And so I started training, but I wanted to know more about like, how do I rig these big high lines? Dude, I want to do that. So I actually, I remember very vividly watching the movie and then freezing the frame on the movie and then trying to zoom in to find part numbers, or <laughs> I would listen to it over and over to see if they would say something about the equipment and if it had a name. And um, the one piece of equipment they that I found was, it was called a span set. And it's like this industrial circular rope uh-huh. that you, um, it's just used for like heavy duty construction. And then I searched, I think I Google searched um, Slackline span set. And then it directed me to this website called Balance Community. And then, yeah, that was the big connection point. Yeah. It was so serendipitous because I decided to just, like, email whoever whoever was behind the webpage. Right. It ended up being this guy named Jerry Mischewski. Yeah. And um, I didn't know anything about him, but I emailed the webmaster or whatever. And he, uh, I, I was just like, hey, man, I'm, I'm super stoked on um, Slacklining. I want to get into Highlining. I don't know very much, but I just wanted to, like, send an email because I haven't been able to find anyone and he wrote back like really quick like 15 minutes later Mm -hmm. and hey ryan so cool you found slacklining i'm actually i'm in uh, davis california i think i had told him i was in sacramento okay yeah and and yeah he's just like oh you should come up and slackline with us we're right here in davis which blew my freaking mind because of all the places in the world he's in davis 45 minutes away from me Mm -hmm. not even like half an hour man and then i show up and when i get to the park It's the dude from Flight of the Frenchies. (laughs) One of the dudes.
0: Yeah. Tell me about the first time that you actually go from being on a slack line. I I guess maybe first some terminology difference between what a slack line is versus a high line. How high does a high line have to be to be a high line?
1: (laughs) Yeah, great question. Um, The answer is kind of not static in the sense of there's not like an official rule. Yeah. Um, We pretty much just judge it by the way that you would judge it in your brain uh yeah. or like if you were if you can die off of that probably a high line That's yeah <laughs> that that's a good thing. judgment call yeah i guess i was thinking in my head yeah. okay so
0: when's the first time you're stepping out on the line and you're looking down below you like okay yeah. <laughs> like, this is uh, something that my brain is telling me is probably not the smartest thing to do
1: well there is one thing about what you just said um that was a little bit different than that and you said uh well maybe you didn't say it exactly this way but that moment when you're standing on a line looking down yeah thing about highlining versus slacklining is even though it's the exact same sport it is absolutely not because i didn't i didn't stand on a highline for quite a while uh-huh. it was a lot of terrifying falls terrifying falls um the the advantages i had though with my slacklining experience and highlining experience is that i came from a, a background in a sport that was based like foundationally on the small stuff, like putting in the miles. And, you know, I had to run. I was running a certain amount of miles a week. I was cycling a certain amount of miles a week. So when I got into highlining and slacklining, I just knew if I wanted to be good at highlining, I would just have to do laps and laps and laps on a slackline. Repetition, right? Yeah. I mean, the transition was hard, but it wasn't as hard for me as it was for a lot of people because I knew that if I could minimize the exposure that my brain was experiencing, once i got on the high line, that it would be you know all i'd have to do is deal with being scared but i yeah. knew that i didn't have to deal with could i walk this line could i sit on the line all that stuff how are you
0: with heights and 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 that side of things the mental side of things
1: dude nobody believes me i'm telling you but i i swear i'm freaking terrified yeah <laughs> i yeah. would be too yeah. It goes away. Progressive desensitization in, in a big sense. You know, you're just repetitively exposing yourself to this thing that I don't know if it's it's just built into humans. <laughs> I've heard that that's one theory that, you know, we stay away from heights to survive, uh-huh. but it genuinely does. I can be on a high line now and really feel no fear of death or falling or anything because I just know I have so much experience doing it. Yeah.
0: What's the feeling that you're getting? You're out there separated from either side, out in the middle of the line, way up
1: in the air. What's going through your mind? Man, being exposed on a high line, I literally can't seem to find anything else that even holds a candle to it. It's there's nothing like it in every way. I was just in China on a 1700 Foot high, oh
3: 1400 foot
1: long slack line. Yeah. And just when you think you've got this whole sport kind of under wraps, and I, you know, I can handle the heights, da da da. da, da. No way, man. I got out there. <laughs> I was just, it's like I'd never been on a slack line in my life. Yeah. So there's that feeling. There's that feeling of sheer terror. Um <laughs> Uh, But then ironically, you know, there's also this thing that starts to happen. I think it comes with the maturity in the sport where it becomes so freaking beautiful for a lot of reasons. One of which is the the chemicals that are going on in your brain that are making every sound louder and every color brighter. Mm. So there's there's surely that. But a lot of sensations on the line.
0: Tell me about your most frightful or the most terrifying experience being on a high line where you were. Uh, the settings, uh, just how challenging, mm-hmm. maybe the most challenging one.
1: Okay, man, that's so hard. Um, I'll talk about the most frightening one, I think, uh-huh. um, yeah. for a lot of reasons. A couple of years ago, I was in Tasmania. Yeah. For those who don't know where Tasmania is, it's an island off the Southern coast of Australia. Yeah. yeah. It's known for how rugged and raw it is. And it's just really a powerful place. Um, uh, it's also home to the tallest sea cliffs in the Southern hemisphere. Yeah. So we decided to go there. It's called Cape Pillar. And wow. this place, man, I, I've never seen anything like it in the world. These sea stacks just shoot straight mm. from the crashing waves. Mm. There's there's not mm. an angle on those rocks. It's just total 90 degree all the way to the top. And it's directly 1,000 <laughs> feet down. Uh-huh. So looking down 300 meters, super intense. The uh, <laughs> sound of the crashing waves would just reverberate all the way up these this big chasm it's called the chasm Uh um yeah you've got the waves crashing you've got the rig like establishing the line was pretty difficult we Mm -hmm. had to repel down part of this thousand foot deep cliff and it was just really really intense uh wind howling like very you know i don't even know how much i I heard it was like 70 kilometers (sighs) uh wind is very powerful so yeah you've just got all these things compounding and that just side note is what makes highlighting difficult is you take something we call it exposure, right? Yeah. A lot of things give you that feeling of exposure. So how high you are, um, is there water? Is there a waterfall? Is it loud? Is it quiet? Is it this? Is it that on and on and on Tasmania, man, it, (laughs) there was just a multiplier of like 10, (laughs) um, in terms of what I was experiencing. So, all those things contributed to it we finally got it rigged um it was freezing and we were there with the photographer and she had a vision of what she wanted for the photo and her vision was from pulled way back and (laughs) without a shirt on (laughs) Uh because it would just make it look make the picture look really raw it was also so freaking cold (laughs) and so (laughs) i'm freezing i'm scared out of my mind the wind is blowing so hard up that it's pushing my feet like up almost off the line it's just crazy wow So whenever I think of how scared I've been, that's my reference point typically.
0: There's so much more to this episode that I find fascinating. That's worth a full listen. He talks about quitting his job and how he got into the sport full time. But fear, the the fact that he's afraid of heights and still gets out there, that's remarkable to me. And proof that fear is often illusory. The next episode I want to share is number 10. Patti Catalano Dillon. Patti was the first American woman to break the 230 mark in a marathon. She's been called the queen of US distance runners. She's won titles in Montreal, Hawaii, Brazil. But when she started running, she smoked two packs a day. She described herself as 40 pounds overweight. Here's her story.
3: So I really wanted to lose weight. And I saw this book and it was uh, Ken Cooper book, aerobics. And I looked through it and it was a thing called jogging that if I ran for an hour, I would burn 700 calories. And I thought, you know, this is, this is really good. So, and I said to wear your, I followed directions, and I really did. It said, wear your most comfortable pair of shoes. And mine were earth shoes. So I had knee socks, earth shoes. Uh, cut off jeans with fringe. I had the fringe ones going and I had uh, the neoprene belt because my father was a boxer and he would wear the neoprene belt while he was jumping rope. So I said, ah, I'm going to go down my my mom's house and get the neoprene belt. And I did. And I wore like three heavy sweatshirts and the, you know, the kind that don't breathe. And I went to the cemetery and I, I started running. It was a um, On the outskirts of the cemetery. I didn't want anybody to see me. And so I'm running the outskirts of the cemetery, and I just know that I was just going to run and run and run. And I did. And I, I was running and running, and it was awful. I felt awful. And then I remember going around some more, and a police car came up. And he asked me, What are you doing? And I slowed down and stopped, and I looked right at him. And I was really nervous. And I said, "Um, um, I'm jogging. And he looked right back at me. And he said, after a few moments, he went, Uh huh. And I just stood there, and I didn't know what to do. I thought I was going to be arrested or something. And he said, Okay. And he just moved, he just left. And I stood there, and I said, oh, okay." So I ran some more, and I went back to to the Y. And I went into the locker room, and I sat on the bench. And I'm getting undressed, and I'm like, oh, wow. And I just couldn't get over that. I I felt I was sweating. Everything was soaked. I was okay until I looked in the mirror. Martin, and I looked awful. I looked absolutely (laughs) awful. I had a white face, red patches black and maroon circles under my eyes and I was beside myself I never saw myself look like that and I thought oh my gosh no wonder he stopped me oh my gosh I should be dead I don't know but I felt pretty good and I went into the shower Martin and I don't know what it came over me I just went into the shower and the water's coming down on me and I thought this feels so good And I started to cry. I don't know. I had never felt this way in my whole life. And nobody gave it to me. And I thought, well, then if nobody gave it to me, nobody can take it. Nobody can take this away from me. And that's why I started running again and again. But after... Of course, I went to work, and I'm I'm happy as a lark and everything, and people wanted to know, what the heck's wrong with Patty? She's so happy. <laughs> and um, they said, I don't know. She did something called jogging or something. So I couldn't, the next morning, you know, I roll over, get my cigarettes, you know, but I couldn't barely roll over. I was so sore. Oh. So it took me about another two weeks for all the pain to go away, and Martin and I went out, and I did it again. Of course, uh, where I was running was at the Quincy Y, and I fell in with the group. They saw me, and they go, who's this girl running? I don't know. And I would see these guys, and there was a group of them, and they had just got through running the Boston Marathon. I'm hearing all these stories, and I blurt out, Martin, I aptly blurt out, I'm going to run that race. I'm going to do it next year. Guy looked at me, Jake Mahoney, and he looks at me and he says, Oh, is that right? Well, did you know that you have to qualify? And I said, No. And I said, Well, qualify? Well, what's a marathon? And he looked at me again like, Are you for real? And he said, A marathon is 26.2 miles. And I was like, Oh, all in stride, didn't miss a beat. And I said, Oh, okay. And I said, then, you have to qualify? And he said, yeah, you do. As a matter of fact, we're all getting ready for a race in October in Newport, Rhode Island. And I said, okay, I'll run it, not even thinking that it's another 26 miles. And I'm thinking, (laughs) I have to run 26 miles to prove I can run 26 miles? I thought that was absurd, and uh, whatever it was, I said, okay, I'm going to do it, not even thinking that it's 26 miles. <laughs> the day before the marathon, I went down to my, my mom's house, and nobody's home except for my little sister, and my little sister's seven years old, and she's in the kitchen, and I go in, and I, I ask her, you know, where is everybody? She says, why? What do you want to know? And I said, well, I want to tell Ma. And she goes, what do you want to tell Ma? And I said, well, I'll tell you. You tell Ma I may die. And she goes, what do you mean you may die? And I said, I may die tomorrow of a heart attack. (laughs) And she's looking at me, and she stands up on the chair, and I give her a hug, and I said, Maureen, I'm going to run a marathon tomorrow. And she says, what's a marathon? I said, well, it's a race, and it's 26 miles, 26.2. And she says, well, why are you going to do that? I said, well, there's another race that I want to do, and I have to prove that I can run this race. And she said, oh. And I said, well, I just want to let you know I love you, <laughs> and I may die. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I mean, Martin, this is the truth. This is the honest-to-goodness truth. And she's like, oh, okay. So I said, well, I'll see you later. She goes, yeah, see you later. So I wake up the next day. We go to Newport, Rhode Island to do this race. In the meantime, I, ha- I got married. And my husband's running in the race with his friend, with some of the group. I married one of the guys in the group. So a couple of the group in the group are running. And we line up, and he, my husband turns around to me, and he's kind of up front. He turns around and looks at me because I'm kind of in the back. And he says, uh, hey, do you want me to run the first loop with you? And I don't even know what a loop is. And I say, no, 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 you go ahead. So he and this other guy go off and I'm running. And all I know, Martin, that the more I hurt, the harder I'm gonna run. That's what I have in my head. So that's what happens. I I don't even remember feeling pain. I just remember that I have to think harder. I have to concentrate. I learned later that it's called focus. (laughs) Pay attention to what you're doing. And I come across, um, I'm finishing the race. I get through the race. I'm finishing the race, and I hear the loudspeakers, and I hear, here comes Patty of Quincy, first woman. And I get goosebumps, and I think, oh, my gosh, that's me. Oh, my gosh. And I'm like so excited, I race across the finish line. I come through the chute, and um, I'm so happy. And up ahead, just a few people up there, I see my husband. And I call to him, and I say, hey, how did you do? And he looks at me, and he's bewildered. And he said, did you finish? I I said, yes, did not you hear? And he said, no, I, I, I didn't. And I said, oh, I just finished. And I said, "What was your time?" And he said, "It was 2:53." And I said, "Really?" And he says, "What was your time?" I said, "It was 2:53:40." And I said, "If I knew you were that close, I would have beat you."
4: <laughs>
3: <laughs> well, we divorced a few months later. He didn't take too well to that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you have a quote, and it's uh, you said before, "If they're gonna beat me." They're going to have to spit blood. Oh,
3: yeah. Yeah, right. <laughs> real. That's real. Oh, yeah. You know, because, um, you know, I have my first few races, well, first couple of years anyways, Martin, I would have a panic attack during a race. I was so unsure of myself. I, would, I did a lot of my racing, like, on two hours sleep because I couldn't sleep. I was bright-eyed and bushy-tailed at four in the morning. You know, and my race is at eight or at nine, and I didn't sleep. And I would have a panic attack in the race, and I had to figure out what I was afraid of. So I figured out that when I run in a race that I want to run in, and there's nobody in there, there was not much competition, I can't say nobody, but I won the race. And it was because I was calm, and it was because I got a night's rest. I wasn't worried. So I got to the point where, okay, I don't care who's in this race because I'm going to run my tail off and I'm going to do everything I can do to do the best that I can do. And I don't care who's in it, because if they're going to beat me, they're going to spit blood because I'm going to make sure that I'm going to outwork them. I'm going to (laughs) work (laughs) them. So, yeah, you know, so I, I that's what I did. I got rid of my fear, my anxiety by embracing the fear of not being fearful, if that makes any sense whatsoever, um, because I didn't care. Go ahead. You want to you want to run? Go ahead. But I'm going to tell you this. It's not going to come on a silver platter. I am not going to lay down and have you run over me while I hyperventilate. I am going to get myself together and I am going to make you work.
0: (laughs) Patty is such a storyteller. She could talk just for hours and it'd be interesting. But I I love that last bit about fear, about finding out what you're afraid of and going after it. There's something worth hanging on to there, something worth implementing. Another great episode to listen to for more marathon stories. We'll go to Sean Stevenson next, episode 23. Sean was one of the most meaningful guests for me. When I was in high school, I came across Sean's work, his message of mentality creates reality. And it stuck with me at a time when I was insecure and looking for motivation. Sean was born with a rare bone disorder, osteogenesis imperfecta. He became a world renowned motivational speaker, he met the Dalai Lama. This episode hits different now that Sean has passed away, but I think his legacy continues. Here's a look at his story.
2: My bones are more fragile than most people, and because of that, throughout the course of my life, I've fractured for way less impact than, say, your bones would. So, sneezing would break ribs, putting on a pair of pants too quickly could break legs, and... By the time I was 18, I'd fractured over 200 times.
0: Uh, Your odds of survival were about as slim as they come at one point in time. What did that picture look like in those early
2: years? Well, when I was born, the doctors told my parents I'd be dead within the first 24 hours. And, you know, my my comment now is 38 years later, all those doctors are dead, and I'm still on this planet. So you can't always (laughs) trust the experts. And, uh, you know, in my life, my mortality is still put into my face about how fragile life can be. And, you know, growing up with this condition, simple things could injure me or kill me. And so my parents did a phenomenal job of, of providing and protecting and keeping me safe and teaching me about the ways of the world so that I could go out on my own and take care of myself just as good. So. You know, it's, uh, life is short for all of us in the big picture. However, it can definitely be cut short sooner for people with my condition. Uh,
0: Mark Twain has a very famous quote. Uh, the two most important days in your life are the day you're born and the day you find out why. Uh, what is your reason for getting up in the morning, for getting out of bed on those days when you, you look down at your legs and you wonder why or on those days when you feel like you need to re-energize
2: and you need time? Well, uh, my mentor asked me a question that I'll pose to your listener, and that is, why were you born? Like Why were you born? The Mark Twain quote, you know, the, the day you realize why you were born. And for me, I know I was put into this container, and I, I actually have a spiritual belief that I'd like to share with you that I chose to be in this container with my creator, and that my container, my container is a part of my purpose. It is a tool that I needed to achieve my purpose. I am meant to teach the human race about insecurity and self-care and self-trust and self-love and self-esteem. And I actually think I have a better tool for that than Tony Robbins. And I think he would agree with me that when a three foot tall man in a wheelchair tells you that you can live life without feeling bitter and you can live life and look at what you do have instead of what you don't have you're more likely to listen to that than somebody six foot seven that looks like an adontus. you know so why was i born to rid the world of insecurity and i think that insecurity causes us to do some of the dumbest things on the planet to ourselves and others i believe insecurity is the root of war I believe insecurity is the root of violence. I believe that insecurity is the root of self-sabotage and, and um, self-mutilation and, and just a lot of um, human-made illnesses because we're, we don't feel like we're enough. And when you feel like you're not enough, then you, you reach out for behavioral choices and substances and activities that, it, that can be very destructive. And so what gets me out of bed is how can I use this laboratory that is my body to recreate solutions to climbing out of pain, climbing out of self sorrow, climbing out of self sabotage, rising up from self doubt and, and shame and anger and bitterness. And, you know, that's a that's a level of energy that cannot be matched by any amount of drugs or caffeine or anything, because I believe it's why I'm still here, you know? I've faced death so many times, and yet I'm still here, and I believe it's because my why to be here is is stronger than practically anyone I know.
0: Your mom told you something. I believe it was around the time of grade four, and she was saying that you can choose to look at your life either as a burden or as a gift, how did that change your outlook on things?
2: Well, you know, it's stuck with me to this day. The, the, your interpretation is what matters in life. If you interpret yourself as the villain, you will be the villain. If you interpret yourself as a hero, you'll be the hero. If you interpret yourself as that the world has taken things from you, and you will act a certain way versus the world has granted you gifts. And my mom's pivotal question is going to be a gift or a burden. You know, it's it's as applicable at 38 as it was 8.
0: Right, right, right. Uh, Where in your life did you go from being a kid, watching Tony Robbins, seeing infomercials with him, to thinking, I have something to say too, and I want to get up on a stage and share it?
2: Well, I had an advantage. I had an advantage. And the advantage was that everybody was already staring at me. So I might as well give them something to, to, to remember me by hmm. and to remember life by. So I was, able to, uh, I was able to take the eyeballs that were already on me and, and, and get paid to have them on me. <laughs> and, uh, you know, w- what I did is I really just got curious about life. I wanted to figure out my own mind. I wanted to figure out my own spirit. I wanted to figure out my own depths of my fears. I wanted to figure out my own dreams. And so I would be lying if I told you that, that I created this mission because I only care about human race. I do care about the human race, but that's not the only reason. There's also a selfless driver trying to figure out me. And, and I get to figure out me real time with an audience. And I find that the more vulnerable and real I get, the more people feel connected to me and the more connected I feel to people.
0: For those times of insecurity in your life, in those early years when, as humans, you know, we start to look outside for our validation rather than to have it come from within, you start to look to your peers as you're in elementary school and then middle school and high school and then into your early 20s, uh, and you're looking outside of yourself for that validation. Uh, what were your own experiences with insecurity at that time?
2: Uh, they probably weren't. That much different than now. Uh, I don't think your insecurities ever go away. I think you either live a life that amplifies them or makes them dormant. My insecurities back then were my condition, my appearance. You know, was I flawed? What was wrong with me? Why didn't women want to find me attractive when I was in my dating years? And why couldn't I play sports like all my other friends? Why could my other friends sneak out their bedroom window and climb down the trellis and, and go drink and I, I was trapped in my childhood bedroom until I was 31 years old. Um, you know, it's uh, a lot had to do with my disability. Um,
0: I think that was my,
2: the, the stem of a lot of the biggest insecurities.
0: So it, it kind of comes back to this idea that no matter who you are, successful or not, or, or perceived as successful or not, you have those insecurities it's more about what you do in spite of those insecurities or in spite of the doubts you experience the way that you're feeling
2: i wouldn't say in spite i'd say amidst you know you want to know some of the most insecure people i've met are billionaires and multi multi multi-millionaires they're they're running away from something and i'm not saying that money is a bad thing Uh, i believe your insecurities can when used properly they can fuel a lot of great dreams you know uh It's quite possible that insecurities have built skyscrapers and smartphones and jet engines. And I do believe that insecurity may have a purpose here. But I don't think they need to dictate our emotional conditions. I think we need to live a life. Like, what could we build? What could we do if we did feel like we were enough?
0: How have you overcome that voice in your head? And how do you continue to confront that voice in your head?
2: Yeah, I was going to say I have, not, I have not overcome it. Um, it's a process. It's a process of, you know, I'm a very boring speaker in this regard. And that is I keep coming back to self-care because everybody says, oh, the answer is self-love. I used to think that, like, just love yourself, love yourself, love yourself. But you can't love yourself if you don't trust yourself. Because if you go to love yourself and you don't trust yourself, you're like, no, this is a lie. I don't, I don't believe this. And this is why you've got to take great care of yourself to trust yourself. And once you trust yourself, then you can love yourself. So it's, a, it's this process of care, trust, love.
0: So it's not enough to tell yourself you know, that you matter and that you're important. You have to show yourself
2: and treat yourself. Like you matter. Yep, affirmations. Affirmations without actions are hollow. If anything, are are very confusing, because it's like spraying perfume on a ball of poop. Like, <laughs> like yeah, that's great. and you have a stinky ball of poop that smells a little bit perfumey. It's not real. You didn't change the context. But if you cleaned up your environment, then wonderful things can emerge from that.
0: John is well worth the time going down a YouTube rabbit hole if you ever want to hear more from him, an excellent speaker. The last conversation I want to bring you is one with Michelle Chikwanine, one of the most memorable guests on the show, episode 50. Michelle is a speaker too. He's an author, a peace advocate, he's been a United Nations fellow for people of African descent. Michelle was five years old when his home of Congo was under military dictatorship. He was at school playing soccer when he was kidnapped by rebels. He was put in the back of a truck, brought to a camp hours away. He was blindfolded, given drugs, forced to shoot an AK-47. Michelle was afraid, but he was more afraid of his father. His dad had told him to come home after school, and he'd broken his curfew. His story of escape is one to remember. So is his story of how we can work towards
4: peace. We get put into a tent. And we were told that if we leave, uh, that they're outside and they'll shoot us too. Mm. We don't go to sleep at that that night. My head, my head. I, I've. I i do not know if anyone's ever had a fever before, but I felt like I was having a fever. I used to have malaria all the time as a kid, and so I remember that feeling. And my head's pounding. My my arm, where I was cut, feels like it's pulsating. And. I look around me and everyone is sort of in sort of this very disoriented phase knowing, you know, people are kind of like crying and sniffing. You know, yeah. when you've cried so much, you're not, you you don't have any more tears. Uh, mm. The second day we basically start get put into a line. There's a few women in the camp who were making food for all of us. And so they make us breakfast, which is basically like corn, corn meals, we like corn dumpling and beans and, uh, and tea. Mm. And we get told that we're going to be trained into the military. So they start training us basically for the whole two-week period we were there. We were being trained how to be in the military. I was taught how to put an AK-47 together, how to to break it apart, how to stab someone. Like literally we'd we'd practice how to stab someone with a bayonet Mm -hmm. um, using banana plants as as people in a sense. Um, We'd wake up very early. We'd go on marches, like literally running and they would teach us chants and so do formations and things of that nature so the military training is basically what we were doing for two weeks yeah yeah did
0: you ever think you would see your family again at that point
4: for the first few days i thought i thought so you know but Mm -hmm. as the days kept continuing and it was almost like a feeling of hopelessness yeah. Um, because every day every morning I would wake up th- I'd go to sleep thinking that this was a nightmare I was going to wake up from and then some days when I wake up during the day you know, we were told we are going to be on patrol and that means like you were being watched by other people and then basically basically showing you how to do patrol for, for them we'd go through like the forest and some of those moments I would catch myself thinking that maybe my father was going to come in somehow with the military and they're going to kill these people and they're going to save us But then, you know, every morning I'd wake up and I'm still in the same situation. And so every day became sort of this sense of hopelessness, knowing that there's nothing that I'm going to do, that my family is gone. And I should have listened to my father when he told me to be home before 6 p.m. And so all these sort of like things are going through my head. But also because, especially when I lost Kevin, I I didn't have anyone that I knew very well. And so I I was trying to find this like a, a person that I recognized and so the rival commander especially wanted to target a lot of the younger kids. And so he would always be friendly with us. He would bring us candy. Um, just, uh, it, was, it was trying to be sort of like the father figure. And in many right. ways, this is kind of the, the the tactic with child soldiers. They try to break you down, right, and rebuild you all up apart in their own image, in a sense.
0: Right. They they take you take your hope away. Yeah. At least they make you feel as though you can't return. Yes. And then this is all you got
4: this is all you got yeah Yeah. and so for a very long period of time during the whole two-week period that's exactly how i felt Mm -hmm. but even though i was so afraid and i always say this even though i was so afraid of what was happening i was more afraid of of my father than i was ever afraid of any human being on the planet and to give you an idea of why is my father was six foot around six foot seven six foot eight 250 pounds so this giant, this giant of a man, when he said something, his voice would like command respect, you know, I, even though I still defied him, like he, the fear of, of him and, and when he was angry was still much more than I had any fear of these people. And so that fear was always in the back of my head, the fear of returning home and being home before 6 p.m., not knowing what day of the week it was, but just knowing that I had to be home at some point, no matter when, before 6 p.m.
0: Mm-hmm. How did you get out?
4: And so, after sort of the initial training process, you know, it was a it was sort of like a very sad, a very sad, sad period. I mean, imagine a five-year-old kid being put in a situation, not having a home. You know, like yeah. every night I'd go crying. I'd would, I would cry, and they'd they'd slap me and tell me to shut up, and I'd have to shut up. And so, after two weeks of sort of that that process, eventually we're told that there was a village nearby that had food and gun supplies that we needed to take over. And so they put us into a truck and we drive to this village and they put all the younger children at the front. And the tactic, as we were explained when we were training, was that the the older soldiers, if we go somewhere and the older soldiers see children, they won't shoot children first, right? They will never mm-hmm. shoot children. Their instinct is, oh, they're just children. But behind us are the adults and they're going to shoot the, the soldiers who hesitated. Mm-hmm. And so we, they devised this plan. We arrive at this, this, this village. We get out of the truck and we're looking sort of across this horizon and we're, in the, we're, we're laying down in this this huge field of grass, like a long, long grass. And the point of attack was that the kids would sort of infiltrate the village first and then the adults would come back. And so we, we arrived there, but I look across to my right and I, I see this clearing of trees. And for some, I don't know what went through my head, but I saw, for some reason, I I think to myself, oh, that's my way home. Hmm. And so I start to, like, walk with everyone else, and we start walking, and then a gunshot goes off. And so chaos sort of ensues in that moment, and everybody sort of, like, running for cover in different places. I just duck on the ground, and I pretend that i have been shot. And so I laid in this long grass waiting for the sound either to stop or for people to keep marching past me. And so a few, a few people start marching. I hear people sort of like talking. And eventually after 15 minutes, I start hearing sort of the voices advancing forward. Yeah. Um, and so I start crawling my way through the grass towards the clearing that I saw to my right. And after a few feet, I just stand up and I start running towards the clearing as fast as I could. And for three days and three nights, I ran through that jungle having no idea where I was going. Um, uh, but somehow eventually I ended up in this, after those three days, initial days, I ended up in this other clearing and I start to hear sounds and I hear people screaming and talking and, and trucks. And so I start to figure that maybe the soldiers had chased me and they'd caught up to me.
0: Right. Did you see anybody in those three days and three
4: nights? Oh, no. no, I was by myself for the whole night. And the reason why I survived was, and um, and this is the reason, one of the reasons why I love my father was when I was a kid, because we didn't have TVs or, or video games, so we had no way of entertaining ourselves. Um, I mean, we had a TV, but, you know, the our electricity sort of went in and out most of the time. You'd lose it for like three hours. And so it wasn't consistent and we okay. didn't have games. So we spent most of my, most children at that time spent our time outside. And because Benny itself was surrounded by, by a forest, I used to spend a lot of time in the forest with my father. And he used to tell me that if you ever get lost, he said, always look for a water body or banana trees because in Congo, the sign that there's there's farms is banana trees and waters always always whatever there's water, there's always people. He he would tell me.
1: Hmm.
4: And so he we used to climb trees. I used to climb mango trees. So climbing trees was sort of like a very simple thing for me. And so I used to climb when it would get dark, as it started to get darker, I would climb the trees and I would sleep in the trees. And I'd just I'd I'd sleep. Sometimes I wouldn't sleep and I would just sort of hug the trees, Mm -hmm. hoping and and waiting for the night to sort of go away. And I would doze off, of course, and things of that nature. I was so afraid. Like I was I was so so afraid. To this day, to be very honest with you, I, I don't know how I survived. Yeah. You know, I don't. I don't know. I can't. I. I try to explain, but I don't know. I have no idea. All I know is I had fear of my father. I had this knowledge that was passed on to me by my family and by my dad especially, and it was a sort of like this instinct of like I'm just one trying to get home. And just I kept walking. And in the morning, whenever the sun would come out, I'd look across the horizon to try and find banana trees or any set type of water. Mm-hmm. And so I just keep walking. Uh, wherever the sun was is where I'd follow in sort of my sense of direction is wherever the sun is, that's where you follow. And so I I'd, I'd kind of go. And then eventually that's kind of how I ended up finding my way to this town called Butembo, which wasn't far, which is where the trucks were. And this is where I ended up mm-hmm. finding a man who, who sort of knew my family and, and he took me back. This
0: isn't always an easy, this doesn't always come with an easy answer, but, you know, it's, it's hard sometimes for people to grasp. When issues are so so large and so seemingly uh, overwhelming, how yeah. any one individual can make a difference? Of course. Do you see ways in which any one of us individually can make a difference?
4: Yes. Uh, the biggest the the biggest thing that we have in, in in democratic societies is our ability to vote, and our ability to hold politicians and and our leaders accountable over i mean i've lived here in north america i've lived in canada for the past 14 years and so i've gone to school here i've grown up here in many ways and so i've noticed sort of the and because my father was a politician i'm very i love politics i i'm i'm invested in politics i love sort of talking about those things because i think everything is politics the food we eat has -hmm. some politics behind it everything so but there's this apathy that i think especially people have young people sometimes have this apathy towards politics. And for me, I think if we're going to to make an impact on our planet, on, on the issues that we care about, it's going to have to come from people who are visionaries. It's going to have to come from people who are willing to actually listen and not just speak for me, the biggest, the biggest, um, and the best trait of a, of a leader for me of leadership is the humility to listen and to learn. Mm and we don't have enough leadership in our political situations right now whether it's here in Canada whether it's it's the United States whether it's Europe we don't have leaders who are willing to to be humble to listen of course because there's social issues going on around so but those happen because the people we vote in we vote them based on our own emotions rather than, rather on what are they actually going to do you know what do they actually promise and who are, who, who are they promising those things to? So that individually, one way that we can do that in a democratic society is to actually vote for people who that we know are actually good, good leaders, good thinkers, that they're not just talking out of their mouth and that's it. So mm-hmm. that's one, one way. Mm-hmm. Um, the second way is, is just learn learn the ability to go and actually like be critical, be a critical thinker. Too many of us spend too much time on Twitter. We're, we've become a society of like a 30-second video informs our decisions on everything that happens. Definitely. But the s- society is very complex. You know, people are very complex. Issues themselves are very complex. As I said with the issue of child soldiers, you know, when people mention child soldiers, automatically you think of blood diamonds, um, you know, of beasts of no nation with Idris Elba, kids with guns. But the issue of child soldiers is much deeper than that, right? It's very connected to the issues that are going on politically, internationally, and economically. And so you have to understand those things because that will inform you as a person. And the more informed you are, the more you better you are to to actually make better decisions that are happening around the world. There are many organizations that help rehabilitate children, former child soldiers. But I don't think rehabilitation comes just from you know giving someone. Uh, take their weapon away and give them a, a, you know, an alternative work opportunity and then you beat them, right? Like it has to be a very holistic experience that, and a very individual um, experience. So find organizations that are doing that. They they exist on the other side of the world. So research and find those organizations. So if if the issue of child soldiers is something that you're passionate about or that you want to help, you know, find those organizations that, that are around the world that do that work. You know, these are are just simple things that I guess I can give. But the other thing I think that, you know, sometimes we feel so helpless, as you've just said, so many of us feel so helpless with what we see going on around the world. And it feels as if like the ground beneath us is sort of like shifting and we don't know where to go. But I go back to the quote, my father left me. Great men and great women throughout history have never been described by their money nor their success, but rather by their heart. And what they do for others—it's hmm. our ability to empathize with others. It's our ability to look at somebody else, and not see see them as a threat, not see them as somebody that's wanting to kill you, but see them, see their humanity, and their ability to want to live, to survive, to help their kids and their children survive. And I feel like as a society, as a world in general, we're going away from the very core essence that made has made us as a society who we are. Want to think about the um, For example, the reason why in Canada we have a a, a welfare state, you know, even though it's been chipped away by neoliberal policies, Mm -hmm. but the reason why the welfare state existed came out even in the United States was because people were suffering. And as a society, we said, never again, never again. And so I feel as if we're shifting away from that. And rather than look at each other's humanity, we're becoming very individualistic as a society and right. we're not seeing the repercussions of that because, yeah, you know, there's nothing wrong with, being, with wanting to be a better individual. But if it's at the, at the cost of somebody else, then how is it? How are you becoming a better human being? You know? Mm-hmm. And so for me, the ability to empathize with others is such an important trait because all of it feeds into the solutions that we come up with as a society, reflect who we are.
0: That's it for the show. Thanks for listening, and I hope you liked it. These are just a handful of the conversations I've had about fear on the podcast. I'd also recommend checking out episode 43 with Hillary Nelson O'Neill. If you enjoyed the show, do me a favor, hit subscribe, leave a rating and a review, and most of all, tell someone else you think might like it. You can also head to the shop section of the website and pick up some Story Untold merch It helps to keep the show running. If you want to get in touch a few ways you can, you can send me an email at storyuntoldpodcast at gmail.com. You can follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash storyuntoldpodcast. You can also find me on Twitter at martin underscore bauman. Theme music for the show is by Dr. Turtle off the album You Um, I'll Ah. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman, and this was a Story Untold. See you next time.